The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. I'm Neil Zacharias, and you're listening to Eat for the Planet. On this show, we try to answer the question, how can we eat in a way that nourishes us without starving the planet? The show features conversations with food industry leaders, health and sustainability experts, as well as entrepreneurs and creative minds who are redefining the future of food. Before we get into today's conversation, I wanted to take a minute to tell you that Eat for the Planet has partnered with Plant-Based World to launch the Eat for the Future Business Forum, which will take place during the Plant-Based World Conference and Expo June 2019 at the Javits Convention Center in New York City. The Eat for the Future Business Forum will feature panels, workshops, case studies, and talks focused on the shifting food landscape and will explore the opportunities for retailers, food service providers, as well as brands. We have an incredible lineup of speakers, including a number of guests I've had on this podcast. This event is unlike any conference out there and is a must-attend for anyone looking to expand their business in the plant-based food space. You can find a link to register for the event in our show notes or go to eftp.co slash event to learn more and use the code EFTP at checkout to get 20% off. Looking forward to meeting you all in person at the Eat for the Future Business Forum. Today's guest is Todd Boyman, co-founder and CEO of Hungry Planet, the first company to develop a full range of premium plant-based meats, including beef, chicken, pork, turkey, lamb, and crab that handle, prepare, cook, and taste like conventional meat. Todd spent over 20 plus years founding and investing in companies ranging from technology to trading to food and launched Hungry Planet because he realized that working to change our food system was the biggest way he could impact the health of the planet and the health of human beings. Todd is definitely a strategic thinker and we had a really fascinating conversation that spanned a range of important topics. Todd has eaten plant-based for 25 years and we talked about how Hungry Planet got its start way back in 2004 with the idea of creating a full range of plant-based meats and to do it for culinary professionals. Todd explains why Hungry Planet chose to start with chefs and food service first as an intentional product and go-to-market strategy for the company. How the company is self-funded, which makes them look at the space in a very different way and be patient and thoughtful about every move they make. And how taking time allowed them to learn, get feedback, and adjust the food based on tastes and applications in different platforms, places, and parts of the world. We also talk about how his background as a tech entrepreneur and investor guided his thinking with Hungry Planet. Yet he explains why the brand's messaging is not food tech forward. We discuss the challenges of bringing about price parity between plant-based meats and conventional meat, and how Hungry Planet made an early commitment to help underserved markets and communities by putting aside 30% of the founder's shares to help those efforts. 
You will also learn about Hungry Planet's products and where they are sold, as well as their expansion plans globally and when we can expect to see them expand beyond food service and enter the retail space. Lastly, we had a very interesting discussion about the philosophical differences in investing as well as entrepreneurship in technology versus the food industry. And we get his thoughts on the current state of the plant-based food industry and his hopes for Hungry Planet in the years ahead. If you work in the food industry in any capacity or are an entrepreneur or an aspiring entrepreneur, there are a lot of fascinating insights in this conversation. Todd is driven by a deep passion to bring about change in human and planetary health. But what makes him unique is that he is also an experienced, patient, and thoughtful entrepreneur who's pragmatic about what needs to happen from a culinary, cultural, as well as economic standpoint to make the change he desires a reality. I learned a lot from this conversation, and I'm sure you will too. Todd Boyman, thank you so much for joining us on the Eat for the Planet podcast. Delighted to be here. Thanks, Neil. Um, Todd, so what got you interested in uh, the food space? Because I know that wasn't your background, like me. <laughs> yeah, no, no, absolutely. And, and the food space, I think, has a tendency to draw in people from all different areas, right? I mean, people just love food. Um, so my background is as a tech entrepreneur and a tech investor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'd spent 20 plus years building, investing, and, and growing uh, tech companies. Um, through that time, I also was an uh, angel investor in a variety of different companies, uh, including uh, Honest Tea back in 1997. Wow. Uh, when uh, you know, Seth was starting that business, uh, there were you know, lots of angel investors who kind of uh, helped uh, early on in there. Um, so that was kind of my ex- first exposure to the food business. And um, you know, it pretty well convinced me that I preferred being in tech than everything that uh, was taken, uh, involved in, in growing a, a food business. Um, but I, I've eaten plant-based for about 25 years, um, as have both of my sisters. So they had a big influence on me, uh, as does my wife, uh, eat plant-based. And just as I surveyed the landscape, having done technology for a long time, as well as doing international trade and working globally, um, it just, it was really clear to me that the, um, biggest way that I personally could impact the health of the planet and of human beings uh, which I think are probably two of the biggest, you know, transcendent problems that our generation faces is through the food chain. And so uh, starting in 2004, uh, some R&D started to try to figure out how can you create you know, plant-based meats. And I thought, you know, this is a really interesting problem. Uh, if you want to bend the curve on human planetary health, this is the problem to go after. So it kind of started as a side project and, and eventually you know, sucked me in uh, full-time as the R&D started to pay off and as it was clear that the market was ready for this type of food. You, did you say 2004? Yeah, 2004. It, that's it's, way before most people were doing anything in this space. Yeah, no, I, 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 yes. And, and we've been very quiet, right? So mm-hmm. I think as we were talking about earlier, um, people are like, Hungry Planet, you know, who, what is this company? Um, but actually, the R&D started back in 2004. And the vision uh, from, from day one was how do you perfectly replicate conventional meat um, and not just one type, but a full range. So beef, chicken, pork, turkey, mm-hmm. lamb, everything. Um, because by solving that problem, you know, as people now are pretty conversant with, yeah. um, you pull in the 95% of the population 
that isn't vegan and vegetarian. Mm -hmm. um, so that was, that was the vision back in 2004, and to do it for culinary professionals. And as the R&D started to pay off and the market started to get going, um, about four years ago, it was clear that the time was right, the food was ready, and uh, let's, uh, let's clear off... Um, I cleared off my plate and just focused on this full time. So yeah. it, between the years of 2004 till um, I would say maybe two or three years ago when I first heard about Hungry yeah. Planet, um, when you say you were doing R&D, like were you actually, had, did you have any partnerships as well at that point or you were just literally trying to figure out what your products were going to be? And we, had, we had a small team of, of food scientists, food mm -hmm. chemists, um, and just really tenacious individuals who you know, shared this common vision that this problem needed to be solved. Yeah. Um, and so it, it really just kind of started as a project. And as the food would get developed, um, you know, friends and family would taste the food and then kind of concentric circles outside mm -hmm. of that of whoever was brave enough to, to taste it back in those days would taste it and give feedback. Mm -hmm. um, and we just, you know, we had a lot of great support uh, early on to figure that out. Um, and then, you know, about four or five years ago, it was really starting to take shape. And uh, the full range was ready. And while we haven't really announced everything that we have, um, we're, we're slowly rolling out here you know, across the United States and, and select markets globally. So before yeah. we get into like where people can um, find your products or most likely have already tried your products without even realizing it, um, why did you pick um, food service to begin with at least? Because who knows what your plans may yeah. be next. But... Um, I know that's the space you've been playing in so yeah. far. Why don't you go to like um, CPG, direct-to-consumer kind of yeah. brand? Well, th those certainly are the sexy markets to go after, mm -hmm. right? Because then everyone knows your brand and you yeah. kind of get feted by everybody. Um, our, our vision was to be able to create this line of food that was by chefs for chefs mm. that could be used as a perfect one-to-one -one substitution um, in any cuisine, in any venue, in any geography. Um, and so... That, that's really what we've adhered to because by solving that problem, which is really the more difficult problem to solve, um, you can then head into lots of other markets. But if you start with a very narrowly defined kind of finished consumer product, our thought was you can't really go from there into the professional market. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you start with four chefs, by chefs, and you solve that problem, you can then create derivative products from that core platform and you can move into the other channels. Got it. Yeah. And your products, when you initially started working with chefs, was it, so you don't, you don't provide them a product that is pre-flavored or any of that. It's, it's just a base that they are, they can do whatever they want to do with, I'm assuming. Yeah. Um, so the way that we, we look at it is that um, just as you would buy ground beef, mm -hmm. chicken, pork, lamb, turkey, whatever that is, um, that is our core, core meat. Right. So we, we offer the exact same. And just like with conventional meat, um, that's a fairly neutral flavor profile. Um, you can get chicken that's already been roasted, for example. Um, but if you just get a plain chicken breast, if you don't season it, yeah, it, it's pretty neutral. So our food perfectly matches that natural state of conventional meat, regardless of, of the type. Um, so that chefs then can then season it, can shape it, can cook it and put it in any cuisine, and it's going to absorb all those flares without being overridden by a pre-seasoned, pre-flavored profile that mm. people think, well, this is what consumers are always going to want. Yeah. Uh, we want people, when they eat it, not to always say, oh, well, that must be Hungry Plant Chicken because I recognize the taste. We want them to be, oh, it's Hungry Plant Chicken, and therefore it's going to work perfect in virtually any type of cuisine. Right. Okay. Yeah. Let's talk about what's happening in, in the space now. Right? You have, um, I feel like there's two, two big... Um, 
trends. There's one is food technology, as you know, people throw that term around for literally anything at this point. But the ones that are doing it seriously are the one. Uh, when I say the ones, I mean the companies um, that are doing it seriously are investing in food scientists and are trying to do research about the right ingredients, the right combinations, the right extraction, and and and, and the right equipment to be able to fulfill this idea of replicating the taste, texture, and smell of meat and uh, are putting in tons of uh, um, time and effort and, and, and money to try to solve these problems. And, of course, there are some big names out there in this big in the sense that they've probably gotten a lot of PR that are, are starting to deliver on that promise. Uh, on the other hand of the, of the plant-based wave that's happening right now, are companies that are doing um, products that do offer the taste and texture of meat but are but are doing it with a cleaner ingredient label or with less of a tech focus more of a culinary focus um, and it's and, and I'm not I'm not saying one is better or not both are doing good because they're actually getting people to eat more plant-based uh, where would you say hungry planet kind of falls in um, and you don't have to fall into one end, one camp. You could be in the middle or in both places. Yeah, so I think that's a good point, is that um, you, there are a, a group of companies that really focus at least publicly talking about tech, 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 tech. Mm. Um, and as an investor, I understand that because that's a really interesting story. Yeah. And if um, you're going to raise um, massive amounts of money, investors are looking for... Uh, that type of differentiation. Mm -hmm. um, if you're simply looking at it from, the, as you put it more, the culinary side, and for, for a lot of people, I think that they might interpret that as, well, shredded carrots, zucchinis, garbanzo <laughs> beans, right? Yeah. Um, and so I, I think we're, we're not in that category, right? We're not doing the shredded carrots and, and zucchini and garbanzo beans. Uh, underlying our food um, is um, a lot of R&D and a lot of science. Um, but it's just not in our messaging because mm -hmm. at the end of the day, we really feel as if, well, that makes interesting headlines. Mm -hmm. um, and it probably has been very helpful, uh, definitely has been very helpful to educate the market and build excitement about this. Um, at the end of the day, if the food isn't just absolutely delicious, it doesn't matter. Um, so we've focused on with culinary experts to create delicious food using a substantial R&D science you know, platform mm -hmm. underneath it. It just isn't part of our messaging because we just we don't feel that we need to do that. And, yeah. and in part, that's because we've been entirely self-funded. We haven't taken outside investors, mm. uh, which has let us look at this space, I think, in a very different way than anyone else. It's let us be very patient. Mm. And it's let us make decisions that we think were right uh, to enter the markets at the right time in the right way with the right partnerships um, and to talk about the food in a way that we think is really attractive to chefs. So, um, yeah, to your point, we're probably not in either of those camps. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we have a lot of great science, but it is, it is culinary focused in that we want to make chefs look great and give them an easy on-ramp mm -hmm. to figure out how to use this type of food in any, any type of recipe that they're already familiar with and that they already love. Yeah, and in yeah. terms of ingredients, what, are you, uh, what is your philosophy or current approach in terms of the types of, um, like, what is your base protein in most of your products? Yeah, so we've done a lot of work with a lot of different proteins, um, whether it's pea, uh, fava, you know, garbanzo, uh, soy, wheat. Uh, what we've found consistently um, is that soy and wheat perform really, really well, um, and they give us um, tremendous mouthfeel. Uh, they also uh, let us scale really rapidly. 
I think one of the issues with using kind of novel or new proteins, mm -hmm. again, while it makes uh, interesting headlines, um, it doesn't necessarily give you the nutritional profile uh, that, that people might want. And it also uh, has real constraints in the supply chain. So you know, we're selling globally right now. Uh, we're starting to produce globally. And, so if, and that was our vision from day one. So if you have that vision, what you're looking for is that intersection between you know, the perfect taste and texture, the right nutritional profile, how does it perform when it's moving through the supply chain, and how rapidly can you scale up, uh, and how quickly can you localize production on a global basis. So all that goes into the decision of what are the proteins that you use. Yeah. So we're working with, with all these different types, and it really depends on the market, the type of food, um, and what we're, what, you know, specifically the problem that we're trying to address in any one given market. I know you said you started some of the R&D back in the early to mid-2000s, but you've really, I think, in the last few years, four or five years, have been out there with doing more partnerships. Um, it's also the same time when uh, the whole plant-based protein boom of sorts is, is it kind of happened. You mentioned that you haven't raised any outside funding yet. There are pluses to it, obviously, but there are also most likely a lot of drawbacks to it as well because you just can't go out there, you know, all guns blazing, uh, so to speak, um, promoting your products and uh, and telling a good story and, and manufacturing at scale. So how did you approach um, the manufacturing part of it given um, you probably didn't – I'm assuming you funded it through your own efforts, but um, – but probably didn't have that much of a runway where you could set up your own manufacturing plant. But if you have, then correct me if I'm wrong. Yeah, well, we, we've had the, uh, the benefit of, of launching this with um, a bunch of founders who were successful entrepreneurs in other categories. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, we've had that, that luxury, right? So we've, we've had as, as long of a runway as we've needed uh, without feeling the pressure to, to take money in. Um, and today, you know, actually, we, we typically just don't take meetings with investors who are interested because we just don't want that quite yet. When it comes to the manufacturing side, um, there are two camps, I think, that are out there. Some that think you need to build a facility and you need to invest in all the equipment um, and that that's the right way to do it. There are others that suggest that, no, you ought to really look at the co-manufacturing world. Um, we've done a hybrid of that, so we think that we've got the best of both worlds. Uh, where we do kind of a quasi-co-manufacturing uh, arrangement, uh, where we own certain components. Uh, we let our partners own parts of that. Um, and they're just, there are a lot of benefits to doing it that way. Um, what I find is that if you're going to jump into an industry that may be new to you, such as food, mm. um, and you're not an expert already in food, uh, with, once you jump into that category, there's a difference between uh, developing the food, producing the food, marketing the food, and selling the food, and really trying to figure out what you're best at. And if you look at some of the biggest food companies on the planet, they are actively trying to sell off their production arms. Mm. Right? What they want to be is, is marketing, sales, distribution, and brands. Um, and so that's really the approach that we've taken, is let's focus on that and let's control the part of manufacturing that we think adds the most value uh, and let others really do what they are absolutely experts on. And we've been really fortunate to partner with um, some amazing experts who are just you know, the best in class at, at producing food mm. and we've taught them our our processes and our you know how to do this and we're able to uh, scale very cost effectively very rapidly um as the market is is kind of growing yeah wow. yeah and um in terms of when you were getting started off and um you you kind of had picked your 
your lane to focus on, which is food service to begin with. Um, what were the kind of initial partnerships? You mentioned chefs. Were you looking at uh, local restaurants in your in your area that where you got started, or were you looking at schools and other institutions that could potentially partner with you? I know you've yeah. done now. You've done many of those partnerships, yeah. but in the beginning, yeah. like, and this is a question really comes from a place of. Uh, for someone who's getting started off, like how do you make those decisions? Yeah. Where do you go first? Yeah. Um, well, it, it probably depends on what uh, toolkit you bring to launching a business like this. Mm. Uh, coming as a tech entrepreneur and not knowing the ins and outs of food, um, you know, candidly, largely it was opportunistic, right? We were building great food. And as we would be um, introduced to people who seemed to be kind of in the right spot and were interested in our food, we'd be like, yeah, let's, let's give that a try. Let's see where that leads. So rather than necessarily following this grand master plan, mm -hmm. right, that you would sketch out if you were getting your MBA and you really understood food, um, we were letting the market really tell us where it was ready at what time. And I think there's a lot of benefit to that. And it certainly is helpful in the software world, right? When you can come up with a, a vision of here's what this piece of software is going to do and you create it and then you put it in the hands of a customer and they start using it in a totally different way. Mm -hmm. And if what you've developed is a model that is so rigid that it's kind of, you know, you're betting either black or red, right? Yeah. And, and if, and if you're, you're wrong, you're out of business. What we wanted to do was to create this platform that we knew was absolutely fantastic and then start just testing opportunistically and listening to the market, right? So we were really aggressively listening to these opportunities. So when someone would come, yeah, we'd evaluate, does this make sense or not? But if in, within certain parameters it seemed to make sense, great, let's, let's do it. Let's do it as a test. So when people um, say, well, you guys haven't spent a lot of marketing dollars, hmm. right? We haven't spent it in the traditional sense, but our marketing dollars has been in just working with a lot of people in a lot of different venues and a lot of different geographies. And through that, the data sets that we have are absolutely remarkable because at this point, we've done everything from public K-12 to, you know, steakhouse, fine dining, fast food, college and university, healthcare, virtually everything. Hmm. And we've done it around the globe, right? And so... The data points that we have are amazing that we can now start dialing in and saying, this is what works, this is where the market's ready, and this is where we think we can jump in and, and be leaders and then continue to grow out. Yeah, that's smart. I mean, it, like, so, I, mean I, can, I, I can talk a lot about the parallels between software in some ways and food, which is a, it may sound weird on the, on the surface, but you, you've got to really understand how people are, are going to resonate with your product, and you, you can make whatever assumptions you want to make, but you've got to be prepared to change or pivot or adjust or um, improve every time you learn some new data point from your customer. Yeah. And, and food is such a cultural thing, right? Yeah. I mean, it's just, even with the United States, it's such a diverse country. Um, whether you're on the coast, whether you're in the center, mm -hmm. whether you're in the south, you know, everyone enjoys and consumes their food in a different way. And so when you apply that, not just to the United States, but globally... If you've got in your mind that all we're going to do is one type of meat and we're going to provide it to you in one way, mm. okay, well, that's predicated on the fact that everyone in the United States and everyone globally is going to love that one version. Um, and we just fundamentally believe that it's different. And if you look at, for example, uh, orange juice, anyone who's traveled a lot globally, you order orange juice in different corners of the world, it tastes different <laughs> everywhere. Coca-Cola, right, one of the best brands in the world, is different everywhere. Yeah. Uh, and that's because people's taste buds are different. Mm -hmm. And so that's what we've been doing. It's, it's been learning and getting that feedback and then figuring out, well, how do we adjust the food so it's going to specifically meet the needs 
of those different tastes yeah. and the different applications in different places around the world. It's almost more fun in that sense <laughs> to, to do that because you, you, know, you have to be passionate about food to do what you're doing. I mean, you can't just be like, I've created this one product that uh, meets this one specific need. And you kind of mentioned that earlier. Instead, you're looking and seeing... You know, if consumer food trends shift, um, you know, if there's a new type of cuisine with new flavors, you know you have to now double your focus in that direction, right? If, if certain, especially in the last few years, as much as, you know, I talk a lot about the CPG space, but if you look at what's happening even at the restaurants, those food trends shift. There's some basic things that don't go away in America. Yeah. Um, and I know you're global too, yeah. so you've got to think about that. Yeah. Um, so speaking of America itself, there's been, you know, an, suddenly a, uh, flavor-forward foods are just way more popular than they ever used to be. And people are open to Korean cuisine and other Asian uh, cuisines that maybe even 10 years ago were kind of on the f- sort of sidelines or the fringe. or was like in ex- maybe only New York or L.A. Uh, so you've got to keep up with those trends and the fact that you're global now. So let's, for someone, again, who, who uh, didn't, who probably tried your products but didn't realize it was Hungry Planet. What kind of places do you currently have partnerships? Which kind of restaurants that someone listening, maybe in the U.S., but we, poss- we also have international ris- listeners, where could they have possibly tried Hungry Planet products? Yeah, um, so um, we're, we're in a lot of uh, college and universities. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're in colleges like Carnegie Mellon, UC Santa Barbara, uh, Williams College up on, on the East Coast. Um, so if uh, someone's still a student, or if they just went on a college campus because they thought the food was so good, or they knew our food was there, um, they would have consumed it in a place like that. Um, we're working with um, from with uh, hospitals uh, who really appreciate the healthful profile that we have in our food. Uh, we have about half the calories of conventional meat, a fraction of the sodium, um, a fraction of the fat, um, and yet we have just as much protein and just as much fiber as conventional meat. Uh, so... Um, you know, if, if, if you've been in a, uh, a hospital recently and, and dined there, you, you may have had our food. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, in, in terms of kind of the restaurants, we're in um, Veggie Grill, which is the largest plant-based uh, chain in the, in the States. They've got 30-plus locations. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've worked with them for about five years uh, where we've done a crab cake for them and, and fish tacos. Um, we uh, partner with the, uh, the folks at Plant Power Fast Food. Oh, okay. um, and uh, a lot of people have enjoyed their food. I mean, they're just, they're crushing it. They're doing amazing <laughs> things. Um, so we, we kind of power their beefy patty, if you will. So if you've ever had a, uh, a big Zach with the beefy patty, that's our food. <laughs> there you go. So, um, and then, uh, you know, out here in, in Southern California, um, people who've eaten up in West Hollywood at Craig's, which is kind of diner to the stars, steakhouse, uh, you know, white tablecloth, dinner, diner, uh, reservations only. Uh, the paparazzi is outside, you know, every single night taking pictures of all the celebrities because that's their hangout. Yeah. Uh, Craig has been serving our burger. Uh, he uses our, our ground beef in an amazing bolognese sauce. He uses our Italian sausage on a pizza. Um, so we're in a lot of different places, but, mm-hmm. but we haven't, um, really focused on necessarily always being hung, uh, 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 menu branded. Mm. Uh, and that was just part of our launch uh, to really prove out our thesis that the food, our food was ready to go in any venue across the United States and that there was latent demand out there mm. rather than spending a lot of marketing dollars to kind of drive demand. We just wanted to figure out, is the market really ready? Mm. And again, we had the luxury of doing that and that we didn't have to hit certain milestones for outside investors saying you need to ramp and you need to ramp right now. Yeah. How do you... Um 
how do you face some of the, because I'm sure one of the big questions you get, uh, especially when it comes to institutions, or even probably food service and restaurant chains, is, uh, is price. Price is the biggest factor, right? One of the many reasons, um, especially in schools, even hospitals to a certain extent, they are not, they, they, they want to do more plant-based options, but they don't. It's just because it, the economics don't make sense for them. Uh, and unfortunately, that's what drives decisions, but that's the world we live in, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so that's a really interesting kind of conundrum in, in this space. Yeah. Um, and it, it's almost amplified because of the broad portfolio that we have. Uh, people are used to buying conventional meat at a lot of different price points. Um, so they, they're used to buying chicken at you know, a dollar, dollar fifty a pound, mm. beef at three, three fifty a pound, and crab at you know eight fifty a pound. Um, and in their mind, because they're conditioned to it, those are the prices that you pay for, uh, respectively, chicken, beef, and crab. Uh, in our world, where it's all plant-based, and we have all three of those and many more. Uh, the price on those is all essentially the same. Mm. Um, and so when we talk with people and they're trying to get their head around it, they're like, okay, I can buy your crab all day long. I mean, that's, you know, that's, that's 30% less than conventional crab. That's fantastic. You know, your beef is, is right in line with what I'm used to paying for conventional beef, but there's no way I can buy your chicken. Yeah. You know, it's three or four times more, so I'll do these other two. So there is some education that's going on mm. out there in the market, and there's a reason why. Uh, some of the companies that have been most heavily funded are focused on beef mm -hmm. because there's a, a mental price point out there that people are willing to pay for it. Um, whereas if you're launching with chicken, trying to compress down to that point is really difficult because the core ingredients, whether you're making chicken, beef, or crab, it, it's plant-based, sort of right? Yeah. So, so, you know, it's sharing a, core, a common platform. You're not going to have that kind of um, stratification of, of mm. pricing. Um, but having said that, um, it's been really important to, to the team at Hungry Planet that we focus on underserved markets in the community. We actually set aside 30% of the founder shares of the business to go into the uh, Hungry Planet uh, philanthropic project. Um, and so through that, we focus on supporting primarily right now public K-12 schools, where when you're serving this category of food, you are competing with the commodity market. And it's tough as a self-funded private business to compete with the federal government, right? So, you know, schools are used to getting burgers at whatever, you know, 30 cents uh, from the federal government. Basically, they're just paying a processing fee to get the food because there's such a surplus of it. And it's subsidized even before it gets into that program. So to compete with that is really, really difficult. But we've been doing that because we've wanted to help make a difference 30% of the business is kind of do, uh, really focused on these underserved communities. And through that, um, last uh, academic school year, we actually worked with Santa Barbara Unified School District, which is about 15,000 students. And we came up with a price point that we subsidized so that they could bring that food in. And they started the school year uh, creating three different menu items off of our food. They created a, uh, a cheeseburger with, with our patty and with uh, plant-based cheese. They created an Italian meatball sub <laughs> and a chicken chile verde burrito because they're from scratch kitchen there. And at the end of the year, they had over 30 items that they had created from our foods, not just the three. And when they tallied up the total number of meals that they'd served in that district, over the course of a year, they'd served 2 million meals. And half of those, or 1 million, were Hungry Planet. So, right. you know, very quietly, you know, in one year, we found a way to support a school district. Half the meals were, were our plant-based meats. We did a pilot with LA Unified. Uh, we're doing some uh, with Riverside. So there are a bunch of different school districts that we're working with. And we're just constrained in, you know, how many of those types of uh, relationships we can subsidize mm -hmm. uh, as we scale up. But there is a way to bring that price 
point down. And with time, we think that we'll be able to work with more and more schools where they can make that a part of their everyday meal because yeah. the, the, the kids love it. I mean, it was, uh, the reaction was absolutely incredible. So, yeah. So how do you, I mean, as a, as a, um, as a CEO, as someone who's running a food company, you mentioned you, you definitely have the, the, the reason you started this and the reason you continue to set aside 30% of your, of your company to focus on those kinds of projects is because you undoubtedly want to make a positive impact with your food um, beyond just becoming a successful entrepreneur, which I'm sure you want to do as well. Uh, because that's in the best interest of the long-term viability of your company or, and in the interest of your employees and, and customers. How do, you, um, how do you make those decisions to, say, focus? Because I'm sure when you are dealing with a school, you probably have to. You've got you've to bring the price down to a point that just will make you even within the same universe that they're willing to talk to. But that's different when you're probably talking to um, a restaurant chain where I would assume, especially if they're offering plant-based options, they're pretty used to a slightly higher price point. So uh, part of you, your decisions, I'm sure, are like how much are we focusing on on doing, you know, making plant-based food available everywhere versus like let's get some big lucrative partnerships at the same time. Yeah. Um, it, like what's your approach to making these these Make choices? Those. Like how do you how do you yeah. reconcile both of those? Well, yeah, yeah the um, when, when I decided to focus on this full time, um, it, it was really almost as a, a sabbatical from from my tech investment and my tech business. I've never worked so hard in my life, though. <laughs> yeah, it truly was. I was like, look, you know what? Here's my opportunity to really focus on something that's going to bend the curve on human planetary health, yeah. and I'm just going to take you know a year or two and take a sabbatical. Um, that sabbatical got way out of control. Um, but, I mean, that really has been uh, the motivating force behind this for the entire team that we've, we've built. I mean, everyone who's involved with this business uh, is involved because they think that this is the single most important thing that they can do to bend the curve on human planetary health. Mm-hmm. Full stop. Um, and the way you do that is delicious food. Um, so that's really the lens that we look through as we're making decisions. Um, and because we've set aside 30% you know, on that uh, philanthropic side, uh, when those opportunities come to us, to the extent that we can subsidize and, and do as much of that that comes our way, we do. Uh, but we don't lose focus on the fact that, yeah, in order to be sustainable mm-hmm. and be philanthropic long-term and not just short-term, mm-hmm. um, you've got to have you know wonderful bases of companies. And so that really is where most of our, our focus is, is spent. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but the team just loves getting involved with these other communities that you know, are hearing about these foods, yeah. but just think that it's so out of reach for them. Um, it's just really satisfying, right? And when you know that for a lot of these uh, school kids, it's the only meal they're going to get all day, mm-hmm. and you can give them a delicious, phenomenal meal uh, that they're going to love, and it's not just going to end up in the trash can, um, there's a lot of reward to that. Yeah. So, yeah, it's not 90% of our focus, <laughs> but, uh, but it is an important part. Yeah, uh, and how closely do you work with, because uh, I know there's a lot of... Um I would say a lot, but there are a few nonprofits doing some really good work. Um, I know HSUS had a big program. There's a small, newer one called Balanced um, that is that is kind of has a similar or very aligned mission. And um, do they uh, because they're on the forefront trying to convince schools to do the right thing? And the challenge they usually face is they need the products then to back it up, and that's where sometimes it it may or may not work out. So do you have formal partnerships with these nonprofits or they, do they end up calling you because they know your products are good? 
So we, we've worked um, quite closely with uh, HSUS, the Food Forward Program. Uh, so we've known them for, for four plus years. Um, and their, their focus um, primarily has been college and universities. They do have a, a group that works with uh, public K-12, and we also have collaborated with them. Um, and the types of discussions that we have when we engage with, whether it's public K-12 or college and universities, is significantly different because the challenges that you have through the supply chain, through the price points, through how food is prepared, what the menus look like, um, the variety. Um, so we, we do collaborate with folks who are, who are doing all that um, because they're focused on that 100%, right? Yes. And so to the extent that we can work with them to help power the change that they're trying to impact, uh, it, it's, you know, it's a really good relationship. Yeah, and I know you you yeah. have a new hire recently from one of those uh, organizations. Exactly. Yeah, I was going to share. So we <laughs> uh, we recently brought on uh, Ken Botts, right? Mm -hmm. Who's just he's a rock star in the space. For yeah. those who who kind of um, are, are deep into this, people mm -hmm. will will know Ken. Uh, he comes with an amazing uh, culinary background uh, and has been bringing plant based uh, menu items to colleges and universities, corporations, and healthcare. Uh, for probably a decade or more, I and mean, he's really been a pioneer in this space. Mm -hmm. And for the past four years, he's really been the person who's interacted on behalf of HSUS uh, with colleges and universities across the country. Uh, so he joined us earlier this year um, to really help take everything that we've been doing with the dozens of colleges and universities and scale that up. Uh, in a way that uh, will meet their needs. So, yeah, we're delighted to have Ken on board. Very exciting. And um, so if someone's listening in, in, in a college or university um, and trying to get more plant-based options in, in the, on their menus, um, what, what recommendation would you have for them? How can they get involved with Hungry Planet and kind of uh, be your ambassadors on campus? Yeah. <laughs> No, that, that's, that's a great question. I mean, what, what we find is that um, you know some colleges and universities, the food service organizations there, they just get it and they know that there's the demand out there and so they're proactively looking for solutions and others don't really understand that there's that demand. Um, and what we found is that the best way to bring change is student-led. Um, we can get introductions to um, you know, C-level executives mm -hmm. at corporations and, and you know, presidents of universities um, but what we find is that those introductions are great and they're welcome, but it's the students demanding different types of foods. Um, so if people you know, go to our website, you know, hungryplanet.us, um, or on social media and reach out, we do have a way uh, for people to contact us and we can engage with them and help uh, provide students materials that they can use to help educate their food service organizations. And what we found is one of the most compelling um, ways to talk about it within uh, college food service is that while it's wonderful to have one or two plant-based options, you know, a burger, right? Everyone loves a burger, uh, but you might eat a burger once a week. Yeah. Um, wouldn't it be great to have an Italian meatball sub, a chicken chili verde burrito? I mean, all these other types of things. And I think that's where the discussion starts getting really interesting, particularly at college and universities, because most students are eating one, two, three meals a day and they want variety. And so if it's great, we've got a plant-based burger, or you can have you know, quinoa um, and tabbouleh and gabanzo beans, at some point people are like, well, what else can I have that reminds me of the other types of foods I used to eat? And when you can start doing chicken and, and beef and turkey, and you can apply that in virtually any recipe that's already being used at a college campus, it makes it really easy for the college to meet those mm -hmm. needs. And for colleges they're looking at, 
um, their environmental footprint, um, and most colleges are, right? They have targets on how can we reduce our carbon footprint? How can we reduce our land, our water? Well, when you can educate the school about here's how you can reduce that footprint by doing plant-based mm -hmm. beef, chicken, crab, et cetera, suddenly the university hasn't thought of it that way before. Right? And so there are a lot of ways and a lot of tools and a lot of conversation starters that we can provide to interested students uh, to get that um, discussion moving on, on their, their college campuses. Yeah, I get a lot of questions from uh, college kids who are looking um, to, for resources. And, and I, you know, I'll, I'll share stuff that I can because we, we put out a lot of content around, uh, well, I have a book worth of content around uh, uh, the, the environmental impacts of food. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, it's amazing how um, people just don't get that connection, the food connection. But it's starting to shift, uh, but it's not going to happen on its own. You need people to, to be out there speaking um, to the right people and sharing the right message. So I think it's, it's all kind of needed. It's just maybe not happening fast enough, but it, at least it's starting to happen finally, which, which gives me hope. Um, and I know you mentioned... Sort of, I don't know if you were joking or you're serious about this. This started off as being a sabbatical project. How do you feel doing what you're doing at this point in time? Um, you know, and the reason I'm asking that question specifically is because I like to make sure that entrepreneurs, if they don't know it already, I'm sure most of them do, that you're part of a rare breed at the right time, uh, doing something that only now can make the positive impact that we need. We have a very short window of time, a very small window of time. If you don't act now in the next, what we do in the next five, 10 years is going to basically determine the future, I think, of, of our, the human race on this planet. Uh, and it's going to be driven by our decisions around the food system. So you being in that spot now, doing what you're doing, tell me what it feels like to be in your shoes. Yeah, well, it's phenomenal. So I've been a serial entrepreneur my entire life. Um, and so, um, you know, every business that I've, I've started and helped grown or invest uh, is fantastic. This one really is, is special in a unique way um, in that the seed was planted a long time ago um, with a lot of patience, but understanding that this was a fundamental problem that needed to be solved. Um, and to see that everything's starting to kind of coalesce here, as you said, right? I mean, the, the, the time is just right. And the data is there. So when I first started eating plant-based 25 years ago, um, my older sister, Jody, who's a partner in the business um, and, and heads up kind of our sales and marketing, she's been plant-based for probably 35 years. Wow. <laughs> um, so, you know, before there was even really the term, right? I mean, she was a, a vegan before anyone else was talking about it, starting in about sixth grade, um, as has my younger sister. So as a family, we've eaten plant-based for a long, long time. Um, and... What, what I've found is that 25 years ago, um, the data was out there in terms of how important it was, both from a human and planetary health uh, perspective, as well as for those who are really dialed into the animal welfare issues. I mean, all three of those are equally val valuable reasons for why people might eat plant-based, and different people might put their weight on different places. Um, but what I've found is that over these 25 years, uh, what was um, pretty compelling uh, data 25 years ago is now just overwhelming, right? So it's indisputable. Um, and with social media and the way that you can share and, and get information out there, um, all that's happening at exactly the right time. Uh, the, the, the clock is kind of running down here in terms of well, how do we restore and replenish and regenerate 
our natural environment. And in doing so, how do we improve our human health as well, right? You can't solve the healthcare crisis we have in the United States with any health insurance plan. It comes back to what you eat. And our younger sister uh, is a physician. And I think all the data shows that um, people going through medical school, of the four years that they're in medical school, they spend three to four days on nutrition. Um, and yet she spends 50% of her time with patients on a daily basis saying, you know, I probably wouldn't need to spend as much time with you if you could, you know, maybe eat slightly mm -hmm. differently. So, so it's really, really gratifying to see that all this is coming along at exactly the right time. Um, and it's wonderful to see energetic entrepreneurs jump in. Um, and I think for those who are thinking about jumping in and trying to address something in this space that has to do with, with nutrition, it's really important to kind of stay true to what your vision is and make sure that it's not just passion, but you're also thinking through the economics. Mm. Um, because the worst thing that could happen is have a lot of money uh, get thrown into a, a really important problem, but to have it squandered and not showing the results because then the next entrepreneurs that come after you aren't going to get funded, right? So it's really important, I think, to be good stewards of the capital that's put into your business uh, and show that not only can you um, do good, but you can also provide a financial return. And, uh, you know, that's been at the forefront of our mind. That's why we've been willing to be patient and make a difference. Um, but through that, right, we're, we're selling, we've been selling in Australia for two and a half years. We just launched in New Zealand at the largest um, burger chain of, of premium plant-based burgers uh, in New Zealand. Um, and of all names, it's actually called Burger Wisconsin, right? I mean, uh, so kudos to Wisconsin for getting your brand down in, in New Zealand. Um, but that's just really satisfying. I mean, we see it all over the world every day. People kind of rewarding us with, um, you know, loving the food and wanting to collaborate and partner with us. And uh, we're just trying to uh, grow it responsibly so it's a long-term, sustainable, mm -hmm. successful business. Yeah, I, I like, really like what you said there about the... Um being financially responsible. I think one of the dangers of the phase we're in right now with, um, with the swirling hype around plant-based foods is that um, it's not too hard to get funding. And getting funding doesn't guarantee you're going to have a good business. Um, you could, you know, it doesn't matter. You could have as much money, but it's really how you use that money. And sometimes having, sort of having constraints around your spending makes you a better entrepreneur, in my opinion, at least. Yeah. Um, well, in the tech world, which I know you come from yeah. as well, right? There's, there's that notion of the creativity of constraints, yeah. right? And so when, when you're working within certain constraints, you get a lot more creative, and you, the end result is often a lot better. Mm -hmm. um, and you see it in the tech world all the time. The more money you throw at a problem, the more that's going to be spent. It's not always wise. It's just, hey, I've got all this money. My investors are thinking I'm going to change the world. I need to change it tomorrow. Well, the world yeah. might not be ready to be changed on your time schedule. Yeah. Um, and yeah, you just, you've got to be good stewards of that money. It doesn't suddenly mean you've raised money, let's go fly first class and, you know, mm -hmm. go party. It's, if you're going to make a difference, be good stewards of it and, uh, you know, be fiscally responsible. Yeah. And yeah. because you, if, if, because if one of these, uh, one of the, uh, these new breed of companies ends up uh, failing for whatever reason, right? It harms everyone because uh, your, all your valuations are going to be <laughs> ruined. And uh, before you know it, the, s the headlines will be written about how all of this was just smoke and mirrors. Uh, most of the tech was not tech. Uh, was yeah. this talk? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, isn't it ironic, right, that the biggest threat to this movement could be all the well-intentioned people who are trying to do good? Yeah. I mean, Silicon Valley is Silicon Valley uh -huh. because you had HP, you had Intel, right? And then yeah. you had all these companies, you know, Google and then Facebook, mm -hmm. and you create kind of this flywheel um, effect where 
people made bets on a category. It did really well, and they seeded more entrepreneurs to do more things. And we're at kind of that HP and Intel (laughs) cycle of that. And so what are going to be the companies that are going to really perform well where people are going to say, great, well, this is a category that not only is helping change the world, Mm -hmm. but is financially a smart investment. And when those start proving out, then you know, more people will get, continue to get funded on a long-term basis. So this isn't just funding companies here over you know, a magical three, four, or five-year period. It really it's that long horizon because 10 years from now, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, um, there's going to be innovation going on all the time. Mm. But unless kind of this generation of entrepreneurs gets it right, yeah. um, you know, we could be our own worst enemies, right? People could be like, oh, you know, hocus pocus, you know, this, this didn't work yeah. out. The yeah. food could be great, but the unit economics don't work. If, if the cap table doesn't work, if all that doesn't work, then you're starved for capital. And in our society, if you don't have capital, it's difficult to grow a business. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What is, I mean, I'm asking you this because I know you, you, you have an entrepreneurship background even before Hungry Planet. Uh, so it's, just, it's a general question. It doesn't have to be about necessarily um, specific companies, this space, but... Um, increasingly, there are a lot of entrepreneurs, um, and I, I'm not make, passing judgment over it. It's just I'm stating what I, the way I see it. it uh, are joining, uh, sort of launching companies in in the plant-based space in different categories, especially high-growth categories that are getting a lot of attention right now, uh, with a very fo- clear focus and intention to to exit within a very short period of time. Um, what is your general opinion of that? I mean, people in tech have done that for years, right? It's like, and, I, and the, the investors love it because, you know, that's what they care about. Um, I, and, and I'm not saying it won't be a good thing in this space. I don't know yet because we haven't gotten to that point. But what's your general opinion on that? Like someone getting into this look to, to ride this, this wave at the moment uh, while, while uh, we're in this honeymoon period and the gold rush uh, and then ride it out to a, to a nice exit in five years. Yeah, so as an investor, um, mm-hmm. I've never invested in entrepreneurs who are building something to flip it mm-hmm. uh, because everything has to go perfect for that to happen. <laughs> um, and most of us, as we live our daily lives, things don't go perfect within a 24-hour cycle. They're not going to go perfect over 36 months. Right? It, just, it, it just doesn't happen. Um, it's what makes all the headlines, and, and it's great press when it happens. And I think folks who don't really dive into the startup scene, regardless of the industry, you know, read about this overnight success. Well, most of those overnight success, there's a story behind the story that hasn't been told. Um, and so whenever I've met with entrepreneurs who, you know, starry-eyed, have, have a wonderful idea and say, hey, we're going to build it to this number, and we're going to flip it in 24 or 36 months, it's like, okay, yeah, that, that's not an idea worth backing. Uh, because it's not going to go the way that you think it's going to go. It's going to cost you two to three to four times more. It's going to take just as much more time. And you're really going to, as we start out the conversation, you've got to listen to the market, Mm. and it's going to inform you. So you can have a wonderful plan, uh, but the minute that you actually start executing it, Mm. you're going to need to pivot, and you're going to need to change, and you're going to need to evolve, and you're going to need to make sure that you have enough runway to do that. And you may not find that you're getting the love back from the market that you, that you thought you did. Mm. Um, and, you know, is that magic suitor going to show up and suddenly say, hey, we're going to give you 20x off of your idea? It's not a good inv- investment thesis, I don't think. Yeah. So I think if you're going to do this, you really have to say, I'm in it for the long haul. Someone might not buy me at all. And I need to make sure that this is a viable business. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
you know, you, you look at, for example, what Follow Your Heart has done mm-hmm. and Tofurky. I mean, yeah. it's just, it's phenomenal what Bob mm-hmm. and, and Seth have done. I mean, they're, they're just wonderful, shining examples out there of individuals who, you know, 30, 35, 40 years ago had this vision about how they wanted to change the world with their brands. Mm-hmm. And, and they've stuck to their knitting. They've stayed private. Yeah. They both have amazing businesses. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, just the ethos of what they're doing is so authentic and so real. Um, so as an investor, I'd much rather, you know, back somebody who, who understands that if I'm in it forever, I'm in it forever, even if it's a great business, um, because that's where you get, I think, authentic returns. And then you mm-hmm. may get someone who comes along and says, great, I want to buy you. Yeah. And it's a, an amazing exit. But, but that probably isn't a good um, strategy for funding a business. Yeah, I would say that's, uh, that would, should be one uh, a red flag if, if someone explicitly is out there saying that's, that's their intention behind a company. Because then you're going to make decisions leading up to a point that you really can't predict is going to happen even if you as you said earlier if you try to do everything right to lead up to that point you basically like design a company to be acquired by two potential i don't know big food companies uh that are looking to expand in that category the odds of it still working out like you you literally have to pull out a magic trick for it to work out in that way (laughs) exactly right i mean and even in the tech world the most successful businesses google yeah. They didn't sell out. Facebook, they didn't mm-hmm. sell out. I mean, they just built great businesses. And in the food industry, um, it, it's it's almost more unique in that the biggest food conglomerates out there have been around for 100, 125 years. And um, that's not, you know, just by coincidence. Right? Yeah. There's a lot to learn to execute properly in the food industry, yeah. to get the cold chain, to get the distribution. Um, it's a lot more complicated than bits and bytes, right? Mm-hmm. And, and coming from the world of bits and bytes, moving to uh, food, it's a steep learning curve, and there are a lot more mistakes that are made, and the big guys dominate for a reason, mm-hmm. and you can reverse engineer just about any food. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, reverse engineering tech is a little more difficult because you get certain lock-in mm-hmm. mechanisms, but with food, you know, you can reverse engineer just about anything. Mm. So you've got to build it authentically, I think. You've got to connect with customers. You've got to connect with chefs. You've got to connect with the market in an authentic way because that you can't reverse engineer. Yeah. You know? Yeah, that's interesting. I think food is just, it's so process-oriented. I mean, you've, you've got to be really good at, at business to succeed in the food industry. I mean, it, it may sound like a crazy statement to make, but a lot of people succeed in tech without being good at business <laughs> absolutely yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the yeah. reason why i said it is because there's several examples of companies that have sold fairly quickly um, because they they designed a, a technology got millions of users and never made a dollar <laughs> yeah but then they got acquired so in, in, in tech there, there's models for that i don't know if a similar model exists in for food and maybe there is someone's going to come up with this i don't know it's this really cool product uh, that has a lot of um, proprietary technology behind it, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I, I think people are so interested when they eat food. Mm-hmm. It's it's in the nutrition. It's feeling good that, you know, you can come up with proprietary anything. But you know, <laughs> when, when our team kind of gets nervous, like, are we moving fast enough? Like, yeah. you know, th- what we always talk about is, look, we, we are basically, um, it, it's a marathon, but we're going at sprint pace, right? Yeah. So this isn't a sprint. We're sprinting a marathon. Um, that's how quickly all this is moving, and you've got to be willing to move that fast uh, to stay up with things. Mm-hmm. But you've got to be ready to pivot rapidly. Um, and if you're just thinking about a short-term exit, not going to happen. 
And when people say, well, you know, are we moving fast enough and who might come knock us off tomorrow? You know, we sit back and we say, well, you go into the grocery store, how many types of bottled water are there? Okay. I mean, it doesn't take a whole lot to reverse bottled water. Um, and yet, you know, there, there's a whole shelf full of a dozen different brands in just about any venue you go to. Uh, it's all at its essence H2O, right? I mean, that's pretty simple. Um, so for what we're doing, um, yeah, people can reverse engineer everything. But you got to just kind of believe that you're doing the right thing at the right pace. And, uh, you know, hopefully things play out right. Yeah, and that, that's where the, your differentiator is your, is, your, is your brand, is your story, is your, um, your kind of how you manage your finances and your manufacturing and a bunch of other things. Um, that will make you eventually outlast others who, who won't get some of those aspects of the, of the industry right. Looking ahead, what, where, where's Hungry Planet headed in the, in the next few years? What's your short-term plan, short to mid-term? <laughs> well, I mean, as you've mentioned many times here, we're, we're at kind of a magical time in this industry, mm -hmm. and we think that we're in exactly the right place at the right time. So it's kind of this Goldilocks moment, right? It's uh, not too much, not too, too little. Uh, we feel as if we have all these great data points out there globally, every cuisine, every type of venue, everywhere you know, around the world that, that we want to be in. Um, so right now we are um, accelerating uh, the growth. Uh, we're localizing uh, production in a couple uh, key markets globally um, so that we can further collapse the cost of the food. Mm -hmm. Another subject that we were talking about yeah. is that you've got to make sure that this is a price point that people can, can pay, and it's not something just for the elites uh, on, on the coasts, for mm -hmm. example, uh, or, or wherever. Um, so we're really working to democratize this food, uh, to get it in the hands of culinary professionals and chefs, uh, to be able to use it in all their favorite recipes in all these different venues. And we're trying to do that on a global basis. Um, we will be uh, spinning up and announcing fairly soon our first uh, international plant, mm -hmm. uh, which I'm not ready to announce today, but mm -hmm. uh, we'll be producing out of that in probably the next 60 to 90 days. Wow. Um, and then launching in a few more international markets. Um, we're talking with a, a few you know, massive international food companies about localizing productions in uh, different countries that have particularly onerous uh, tariffs and duties that makes it very difficult to import finished food in. Uh, again, part of our, our desire here is to help change the planet. And so while our core is you know, paying customers who are going to pay a fair price for it, uh, we're also interested in getting into markets where... Um, People uh, wouldn't have access to our food unless it's produced there because of the tariff structure. So we're working on deals like that. Um, and I think you'll find us in retail uh, fairly soon as well. So we, you know, we get requests all the time uh, on the web of people who've discovered our food in one venue or another mm -hmm. uh, who are, you know, their comment is, how come I didn't know about you before? Yeah. And we didn't know a company like you guys existed that actually has truly a full range and that we can use in any of our recipes. Um, and so uh, I think you'll see us at retail, you'll see us in more venues, and uh, you'll see us uh, scaling appropriately as the, as the market continues to be ready. Wow. Yeah. That is exciting, which also makes sense why you know, the, you've, got a, you've got a good brand story that will resonate with, with the customers in a retail environment as well. So I think uh, that's exciting. My final question to you is, and is a question I ask all um, guests who come on this podcast. What happens, in your opinion, if, if, if you succeed and if other companies and entrepreneurs like you who are working on 
plant-forward, plant-based, sustainable foods that are going to fix this current trajectory we are on. We have 7.6 billion people on the planet today, going to be 10 billion by the year 2050. We need to find another solution to feed the world, meat, dairy, and eggs that is conventionally produced, which is 99% of meat, dairy, and eggs today from factory farms are just not going to cut it. And and if we do that, we're going to be in a terrible place um, 30 years from now. Some people say even sooner than that. So the question really is, uh, if you succeed and if others succeed in this space, what is your vision for uh, a food system in the year 2050 if we get it right? Yeah, well, I, I think if we get it right... Um and I'm confident we will, actually. I mean, I, 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 it's, it's just an inevitable. I mean, all the data points are there, right? Whether we have 7.6 billion uh, people uh, in the human family today, uh, by 2050, projections are it's going to be about 9, 9.5, 10 billion. Mm-hmm. And then by the end of the century, think, people think they'll top off between 11 and 12 mm-hmm. billion. Um, you just can't feed that size of a population uh, animal proteins and, and have a planet to live on. Um, so I, I think that the, the result will be um, several fold is one, uh, the planet will be a lot healthier. Um, we'll be able to regenerate the planet um, and really restore it. Um, and some of the data I think that supports that is that if you look at soy, for example, um, over 80% of all the soy that's grown on the planet goes to feed animal agriculture. Um, and when you do that, at least in the beef world, um, that's the equivalent of taking 25 uh, plates of perfectly good food and every time you eat beef, you're throwing away 24 of those plates of calories, and you're eating one. Um, there's no family on the planet that serves their family that type of food and says, okay, let's throw away 24 perfectly good plates of food. Um, there's no corporation that would run that way. Um, and yet that's part of the hidden supply chain. Um, I think a lot of people are aware in the United States that close to 50% of all the food that you buy and you bring home gets thrown away. And people are aghast and say, gosh, I'm so wasteful. Okay, well, that's 50%. If you look at the 25 to 1 conversion ratio, I mean, that's close to 96% hidden waste in the supply chain. So I think what's going to happen is that suddenly we'll be able to reforest lands that have been deforested because we can convert basically on a one-to-one basis. So the soy, if you use a soy as a protein, instead of having a 25 to 1 conversion ratio for beef, you're going to have a 25 to 25 conversion ratio, which means that you need a lot less of these plant proteins being grown. Um, so I think that's going to be a, one huge impact, right? Our, our aquifers, um, you know, the use of fresh water, um, the carbon footprint, all of that is going to go down dramatically. Uh, but I think equally important is that we're going to see human health uh, change in ways that no one could ever imagine. Um, we all celebrate the, the latest pharmaceutical or the latest treatment or the latest diet fad. Um, when we can just make the default easy choice plant-based, mm-hmm. um, suddenly you start bending the curve and people aren't making a sacrifice. They're not even feel like they're making a switch. It's just, it's the default choice because it's ubiquitous. And I think uh, the economics of that are, are absolutely incredible. Um, when you look at how much money is spent globally and here in the United States, particularly where it's completely out of whack, um, you know, it's close to $12,000 per person in the United States that we spend on healthcare. Can you imagine if you were to cut that in half, cut it by two thirds all that money, what else could it be used for? Really productive type things. So I think, you know, to your question of what does it look like, I think that we're going to see a planet that is much healthier. It will regenerate. But we're also going to see human health 
mm. in ways that we haven't seen before. Instead of treating lifelong diseases, which are a drain on the individual, and they're a drain on society, they're a drain on caretakers, and they're a drain of, of financial resources, suddenly when you can free that up, I mean, that's really, really liberating. Um, and then, you know, obviously, um, you know, billions of animal lives uh, every single year are saved. And uh, when I chose to eat plant-based uh, 25 years ago, I, I saw all the health benefits. I saw the environmental benefits. And once I saw all that, and I said, look, if I can do all that, and I can sustain my own life without taking life of others, mm-hmm. why not? Yeah. And so when you can make that the default choice, I, I think you see amazing cha- changes. And you likely also see an economic boom like you haven't seen before, mm-hmm. right? It's almost like the industrial re- revolution all over again because you are freeing up resources. And instead of um, cal- calculating GDP as, you know, you're, you're adding to the GDP by cutting down a forest, mm. you actually are, are creating, um, you know, new levels of wealth by being able to put capital invested in areas that aren't tearing down but are building up. So I think it's hugely exciting. It's a lot more than just about plant-based foods. Mm-hmm. It, it's about, I, I think, an economic boom and a health boom that would be equivalent to you know the early stages of the industrial revolution. I think it's a very exciting time. Yeah, you said a lot of really interesting things. But I just want to make sure we close out with this one point that you mentioned, which was the connection between the environmental uh, benefits of, of eating this way with the with the health policy and and the global health crisis, um, and, and not only that, but also the economic benefits of doing both. Because if you uh, from a, especially when you're talking to universities and schools and even governments to a certain extent as they decide policies, um, if you want a shot at feeding the world in a healthy way 20, 30 years down the line, um, we have to do this. We, you know, it's, it's not just about... Um, it's just not about saving trees and saving the oceans, although, of course, we need to do that. Without that, we wouldn't survive. But it's all interconnected, and people are just not seeing those connections. They think the health issues needs to be put into a separate bucket. When I think uh, if you lead with the, with the environmental argument, the downstream benefits and impacts uh, go down to health and, of course, then the animal welfare issues. But And, and it really closes out with the economic benefit, which I think uh, most people would resonate with in this capitalistic society we live in. <laughs> I, I think so, right? If you can put it in terms of this being at the forefront of what could be an economic boom, mm. uh, even the most jaded, skeptical people who, yeah. who really don't care about animal welfare issues or the environment, but yeah. if they see that they can make money, they kind mm-hmm. of get on board. And you know, when we look at the United States, this is such an unbelievably wealthy society, mm-hmm. right? Um, and even within that, we, we have our challenges and our struggles, and we try to continue to figure out how do you perfect this imperfect union. Yeah. Um, and yet we often think that the boundaries of our country are kind of the boundaries of our moral obligation. Uh, but it's not. You know, we've got this global human family, um, and unless we figure out how to feed everybody just as well as we hear, um, you're always going to have the types of problems that we're dealing with. Um, so when we can take these delicious, in our case, plant-based meats, and you can give people around the world that same experience without degrading the environment, that's a huge win. Uh, the data shows, right, as societies get more and more prosperous, people want to eat like we in the West do. And that mm. means eating animal proteins. Yeah. So just like these other societies um, on the telecommunications, they, they took that leap. They didn't even have to go through the wire-based landlines. They're all mobile, right? Can we work mm-hmm. with all the all of these countries around the world that aren't yet on a plant or on a meat-based diet? Can we have them leapfrog over animal agriculture 
and give them the next generation. Mm. I mean, that's kind of, I think, the dream that we have here at Hungry Planet is to let, let these developing societies that all want to have this food yeah. completely leapfrog over that, just like they did in telecommunications. And then, then you can see things really explode. So yeah. that's, that's what we're after. Right, that's a, it's a noble goal, and I've, um, I'm going to be rooting for you guys to, to grow faster and do much more in the years ahead. So, Todd, I really enjoyed this conversation and look forward to having you back on some point um, to, to share the growth and the next phase in Hungry Planet's journey. Great. Well, thanks, Neil. I mean, it's, uh, it's a pleasure, and uh, you know, together we'll, we'll feed a hungry planet and we'll do it in a good way. Thank Appreciate you. your help. Thank you. You've been listening to Eat for the Planet with Neil Zacharias. If you enjoyed this conversation and would like to show your support, please subscribe to the show and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. To learn more about how Eat for the Planet can help your brand or organization develop the right strategy, implement scalable operations, and grow responsibly, visit EFTP.co. That's EFTP.co. Let's rise up to the challenge of transforming our food system. Thank you for listening. The headlines remind us daily. The world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply.